Hi everybody, I'm Girl Writes What, and uh, uh, an online friend of mine was uh, really freaking pissed off after reading a recent effort on the part of, I can only assume, is a traditionalist woman in uh, trying to figure out what the heck is wrong with men these days. I'm, I'm going to leave the article in the information section along with uh, some other stuff, but uh, basically just like many traditionalists and feminists before her, she, she really missed the mark by a freaking mile. Um, even though she really, she kind of danced a little closer, like within a hundred miles or so of the, the few core issues that currently discourage men from being the good little married drones they're supposed to be. Despite being critical of feminist attitudes that she rightly sees as anti-male, the article was still absurdly gynocentric. It was very much about what women want and uh, why they're not getting it. And, uh, like, that is getting married, having babies on women's schedules as decided by women. Um, I almost have to wonder whether this author even bothered to ask any actual unmarried males why they're refusing or not bothering to uh, man up before writing her article. But, as I said, it at least poked at the surface of the festering boil that is the systemic nature of the problem, even if it didn't give it the lancing it truly deserved. Her conclusion seemed to come down to why buy the cow when you can get the milk for free, uh, and why get a good job when women are independent and can just give milk away for nothing. Um, both are backhanded criticisms of women's behavior, which is kind of nice, somebody brave enough to blame women for their own troubles, but, but they really fall far short of any real examination of the underlying issues. So, I'm going to give it the old college try and uh, give a bit of an overview of what I believe has become a multifaceted problem. Now, I'm going to read a recent, uh, part of a recent article from Hartiste. Uh, who said a very great deal with some serious literary flair. Uh, it's kind of pearls of wisdom from the pit of social nihilism that is the pickup artist community. And, uh, and he actually was spot on about some things, yet, again, overly simplistic about others. I'm just going to quote some of the relevant, relevant bits and leave a link to the article below. He says... If you want to know why men are running away from marriage, children, and beta provisioning, one major reason is that the women available to these working-class men are flat-out disgusting. What man of normal mental health and active libido wants to romantically woo and date, let alone marry, a beastly, waddling, tatted mountain of pustulence with the issue of three other men barking and nipping at her cankles? And let's not forget that economically empowered and government-assisted women slaves to their hypergamous instincts for a higher status mate than themselves, cannot help but winnow the pool of men deemed acceptable marriage material. When women say, there are no good men left, what the astute observer hears is, there are no good men left thanks to a combination of my increased expectations and decreased attractiveness. He goes on to say, to the factory farm tower, ivory tower sociologists studying marriage trends and turning out Paper after paper of half-assed hogwash, there's a whole other world out there. It's the world of men, and in that world, men's desires matter. You should think about incorporating that ugly reality into your theories. As blistering as that little snippet was, 
it raises some very important points, and I think the most important one is that men's desires matter. When men can't find women they desire who are willing to partner with them, then why would they partner? And, uh, and it really can't be stressed enough uh, that the reality of divorce and family law in our culture plays a huge part in men's growing contempt for marriage as an institution. It's not that men are commitment phobes. It's that women seem increasingly commitment incompatible. The word commitment has, in fact, in female parlance, come to mean up until the moment I'm no longer 100% satisfied with the person I married. And that attitude's only going to lead to more and more divorces as more and more successful women effectively set their sights higher than they reasonably should while their youth and attractiveness wanes, leading to a growing number of them feeling like they settled even if they didn't, even if they scored someone two points above them on the overall attractiveness scale. One symptom of this, I think, uh, that's very telling is OkCupid's recent revelation that women on their site deemed 80% of men less than average attractiveness. That is, 80% of men were below average. This does not compute. This in no way is in line with reality. This is about women's expectations. And oddly enough, no one, least of all women, seem to really give a shit what men want in a partner. Why can't men just be happy with what's available? Well, when you look at what's available to the average man in his 30s or early 40s, a 35-year-old woman who hollers yes over the jangling of her biological clock while unable to keep the grimace from her face because he's a bigger loser than the five guys she dumped in her 20s and now she's having to settle. Or a divorcee who's already financially annihilated and emotionally crippled at least one other man. Or uh, a single mother who's collecting reams of child support from one poor schmuck while her other baby daddy manages to duck his obligations because he's a drug dealer and his income's off the books. And yeah, I'm exaggerating. But you see my point. And no, not all women are like that. Lord knows, I know not all women are like that. But frankly, the consensus among today's women seems to be that this state of affairs is just the new normal. Uh, even responsible women will often frame such destructive choices on the part of other women as somehow valid and defensible. The sentiment in the mainstream is that men should just man up and go along with pairing up 2.0, who cares what men want, and that essentially a woman's behavior and life choices should have no effect on whether she's able to attract a good, reliable man. All of that really doesn't speak well of the principles of even those women who are more well-situated. In fact, I think it's safe to say that the fewer female voices of reason there are out there, the more men are likely to wash their hands of the entire idea of partnering. But I honestly think it goes even deeper than just the baggage the average unattached woman now carries or the danger of ending up an emotionally and financially devastated statistic with generous every-other-weekend access to one's children that's keeping men from manning up. I kind of started thinking a little bit more about this when I uh, watched Typhon Blue's uh, extremely thought-provoking video uh, on what she calls the apexual male, a man who, uh, who does not identify with other men, 
but merely identifies with his place in the status hierarchy. I, I highly recommend anybody to go watching, go watch that, and, and I'm going to leave the link in the information section as well. Her video got me thinking about the White Feather Girls. For those of you who don't know, this was a group of young women in the UK during World War One who went around bestowing white feathers of cowardice on any man they saw in civilian clothes to shame them into enlisting. Now, when I consider how vulnerable so many men were to those kinds of shaming tactics, vulnerable enough to enlist in a war that killed 10 million uh, to preserve their manhood in the eyes of bitchy women they'd never even met. I just can't believe that it's only the risks of marriage, as onerous as they are, that have rendered men impervious to the kinds of shaming tactics employed by traditionalists and feminists who seem increasingly desperate to strong-arm men back into their old roles. So I think beyond any discussion of the risks of marriage, unfairness in family court, all of that. I think way down at the at the core of things, uh, maybe it's about uh, a positive male identity. Now, male identity almost always re revolves around doing rather than being. Uh, most of that doing has revolved around being of use in a uniquely male context. Most of men's usefulness through history has derived from learning male skills and performing them well embodying a male role in the service of women and society. In the more turbulent past, those roles uh, needed to perform a valuable service to women or the community that women couldn't or shouldn't be expected to perform for themselves. Now, this is the most common path, in my opinion, to a positive male identity because men lack a mechanism for automatic own group preference. Simply put, they just don't relate to other men automatically just because they're men. Women have this bias, which provides them a natural ability to form cooperatives and relate to other women and seek consensus through their strong mechanism for own group preference based on gender alone. Um, given the gender roles through most of human history, this mechanism really makes sense. Uh, their individual value as, to put it bluntly, breeders meant that in a survivalist environment, you didn't throw a woman on the trash pile without a pr pressing reason. Adjustments were made when they could be to keep as many women as possible within the sisterhood. This is where you'll find a ton of attention in female spaces given to things like tone and being nice and you know, emoticons with smiling faces and getting along, even when there are disagreements. Uh, a lot of their interactions are about comfort level and feelings of acceptance. Men on the other hand, lack the hardwiring to form a preference for maleness based merely on maleness. And that really just makes sense when you think about men's roles for the last couple million years or so. Um, roles that involve things like beating the men down the valley to a pulp when they threatened his women and children, or competing against other males within his community for a shot at the mating game. Given those roles, automatically siding with one's own gender over the other is just not going to work. And it's not that men can't manifest any forms of own group preference. It's just that when own group preference manifests in males, it, it just isn't based on maleness alone. There has to be a common purpose, a common set of ideals or principles, a common duty or cause, a common doing, or a common position in the status hierarchy.
So men can indeed identify with each other and relate to each other and be team players among other men. Uh, you see it in churches, military units, fraternities, sports teams, even sports fans, political parties, movements, project teams, stuff like that. And while they'll often form hierarchies within those contexts, those realms can be sources of a sense of loyalty and brotherhood among men. The myth among feminists that men will insult each other for displaying feminine traits because they see women as inferior is really just that, a myth. Uh, men do this because women have a trump card that they don't, a trump card that bestows intrinsic value on them, their uteruses, and they retain that value even when they gender bend a little. A woman who acts like a woman isn't seen as inferior at all. A man who acts like a woman uh, has always been seen not as a woman, but as a woman without a womb. That is, a woman with no value. He has no female value, and he has no unique male value, therefore he has no value at all. And unlike women who, uh, who were valuable in and of themselves, men who were not useful did, and still do, get thrown onto the trash heap of society. In the currency of reproduction, an ovum might go for a thousand bucks, a uterus, a cool mill, an ejaculation, that's worth about ten cents. To be acceptable mating material and worth a community keeping him around, a man had to do more than generate sperm. And when the only thing keeping you from becoming completely disposable as an individual lies in differentiating yourself from the feminine to spare women those onerous tasks, well, guys are going to enforce that shit. It's my belief that this is why men have always tended to define themselves by their roles. Father, husband, working man, soldier, career man, family man, middle class man, politician, activist, all of that. In other words, roles to exist in which allow them to relate to other men who also occupy those roles and to derive a positive and meaningful identity from performing their masculinity through those roles. And I also think this may be why suicide rates for men skyrocket after divorce. You haven't just taken away his kids, his wife, his assets, and, and a good chunk of his income. You've effectively stripped him of a huge part of the male identity he's built around himself. So, I'm thinking that for most men, forming a positive male identity in relation to other males requires a couple of things. Uh, a male role that's differentiated from the female one, or at the very least a male-oriented environment, and, well, positivity. Men used to be able to construct a positive male identity out of marriage, that is, through the respected and uniquely male role of husband and father. When that identity is increasingly characterized by society as superfluous, obsolete, or in the words of Harriet Harman, unnecessary to social cohesion, it's no longer a way for a man to defer his disposability, is it? Moreover, when that identity can be unilaterally stripped from him on the whim of, of his wife, even when he did everything right, marriage ceases to be a positive way for men to define themselves as men. It really becomes a way for men to define themselves as chumps and idiots, and nobody really wants to define themselves that way. Moreover, from sitcoms to rom-coms to TV commercials to billboard ads, the role of husband and father is increasingly one of playing the incompetent buffoon to sassy, smart, together, disrespectful wife or even child, 
In the mass media, there's nothing noble or respectable about husbandhood or fatherhood anymore. And when the roles within the marriage uh, have become virtually indistinguishable and interchangeable, a man's role becomes less and less male. It's just a role. Um, it can be a path to meaning and fulfillment if he's lucky, and it, it may be something he desires to do and to become, but it's not necessarily a path to defining himself as a man. So we can scratch that one off the list, even for men who've been living under a rock when it comes to divorce law. Marriage and children no longer offer a reliable path to a positive male identity. It's no longer positive, nor is it significantly male. The workplace is yet another milieu that has largely lost its maleness. And that's not to say that women ruined everything. It's not so much the presence of women, but rather the alterations in environment and interaction many women demand when they want to engage the world through the paid workforce. A male space that leads to a positive male identity doesn't need to be free of women, but it needs to be male. Uh, it needs to be an environment that suits their psychology, not one in which they end up being metaphorically castrated if they want to steer clear of trouble with human resources. And I'm not even talking about vulgarity or expressions of sexuality. I'm talking about things like aggression, ambition, ribbing, competition, passion, authority, plain speech. All of these are often discouraged when women are present in order to spare feelings and prevent discomfort. Outspokenness is replaced with drawing room rules of discourse and ingenuity with protocol, all of which render a feminized workplace, though tolerable to men, no longer a path to a positive male identity. It's no longer a male space, and it no longer appeals to the psychology of men. The workplace has therefore become a ladder. Fewer men feel driven to climb in order to construct their identities. Combine this with the fact that uh, their job is frequently on the line the moment they step out of the rigid, rigid uh, restrictions on their masculinity um, and offend an, an overly litigious female co-worker, a large number of men are not only becoming disenchanted with the expectation to perform in an environment that doesn't feed their nature, and has set them up to fail, uh, and that sees him as disposable. In the absence of those uniquely male-centered psychological rewards and motivators, a growing number of them are finally opening their eyes and waking up to the negative aspects of wage slavery. And that is a pill that, once taken, can't be unswallowed. In every single space, males congregate where women have elbowed their way in and demanded changes. You seem to find large numbers of men just kind of giving ground and eventually losing their drive to really perform there. And, and again, I don't think it's the presence of women that does this. It's the enforced necessity to change one's behavior in order to maintain a proper decorum around them and the changes in how those places function that women often demand. It's the expectation that the environment and the men in it should adjust to suit women's needs, rather than expecting women to adjust themselves to that environment. A few bastions of maleness remain, places where women are often welcome right up until they begin to demand the environment change to suit them, at which point you'll begin hearing a lot of male protest. I can even see this tolerance on the part of men when, say, a woman sneaks into the men's room because the lineup's too long at the ladies' room. 
everything's fine unless she suddenly takes offense at men behaving the way men do in a restroom by farting and pissing in her presence. So where are men retreating to? They're retreating to the internet and the few men's spaces that haven't tailored their rules of conduct to suit women's easily offended natures and need for comfort. They're retreating to the MRM where a common set of ideals and values bonds the community and allows them to define their maleness irrespective of society's or women's approval. A place where words and ideas are more important than the tone or the smiles that may or may not lie behind them. They're retreating to the hierarchy and uniquely male objectives of the pickup artist community, where competition and scorekeeping are indeed still allowed, even encouraged, and where there are men for others to admire or to mentor, where they thumb their noses at women, what women say they want. Society was not working for those guys, so they invented their own society, and they're running with it by their own rules. Y you see it in comics and video games and those related forums, online venues where refusals to police speech are usually deemed misogyny, and the men there just don't really give much of a fuck. You see this in men going their own way, who've taken a stand based on a realistic assessment of what's in it for them, and who maintain their self-respect not by complying with society's expectations, but by disregarding them. And you see it in the beer, buddies, hookup, and Xbox culture. Part-time jobs men tolerate but don't care about. And you really see it in the gynocentrism of manginas and white knights who supplicate and pander to the feminine even when it's ugly or amoral, differentiating themselves from the feminine through their blind worship of it. And why? Because all of the approved paths to a positive male identity. The paths society both endorses and depends on are gone. Even when men don't consciously realize it, they, they know it somewhere in the backs of their brains. Men have always been willing to work and sacrifice and sweat and bleed if they were rewarded with a means through which to see themselves as worthy of respect. But when every single role society wants to cram you into is no longer a way to respect yourself or have the respect of others, then it's really time to throw those roles away. And one thing that Typhon Blue's apexuals at the top of society, like Bill Bennett and uh, Obama, feminists like Kay Heimowitz and Katie Roythe, the traditionalists like Suzanne Venker, one thing they're never going to realize is that using shame to try to coerce men to do what is expected of them isn't going to work this time. Because while it's possible to shame a man into giving his life for his country if there's a promise of respect in it, it's impossible to shame someone into working his ass off and risking his whole future just for the joy of looking in the mirror and seeing Homer Simpson or Ray Barone or Dilbert looking back at him. When the cost of society's approval is the self-respect you derive from a positive identity, it ceases to be worth it to a lot of men. Anyhow, those are my ideas. Um, these are just things that I've been thinking about, and, uh, and I don't absolutely do not think that they are written in stone. If anybody has any... Um, anything to add or any criticisms of my assessment here, 
Um, I will happily entertain them in the comments. And uh, I guess I will see you all again later. Not too long ago, uh, I had it out with a feminist who had come into a male safe space uh, from a feminist blog, uh, just to scoff at the idea of male disposability. Um, she she went there and basically said that the entire concept was a myth, that men's lived experiences were completely wrong, and that they were just a bunch of whiners who were complaining over nothing. Uh, yeah. Anyhow, that got me thinking about the concept of male disposability and how that interacts with the feminist movement. Male disposability's been around since the dawn of time. <laughs> uh, and it's based on, on one uh, very, very straightforward dynamic. Uh, when it comes to the well-being of others, they come first, men come last. This is, this is just the way it, it has always been. Uh, seats in lifeboats, uh, <laughs> being rescued from burning buildings, uh, who gets to eat? Um, really, society places men dead last every time, and society expects men to place themselves dead last every time. Humans have always had a dynamic of women and children first, and that has not changed at all. Uh, the 93% workplace death gap has to be evidence of this, uh, if only because there's nobody with any kind of importance or power who's interested in changing it at all. In fact, I remember reading an article in a BC paper not long ago uh, that described the increasing proportion of female injuries on the job as a huge problem. And the insane thing was, the change reflected a decrease in male injuries rather than an increase in female ones men's injuries on the job had gone down because the economic downturn had put so many men out of work in the resource sector that there just weren't as many trees or pieces of heavy equipment falling on men as there had been before. And yet, this was framed as a huge problem for women that required immediate action to solve. Um, it, it's just crazy. Uh, it's like if men aren't dying at work at 20 times the rate women are, we must be doing something wrong as a society. Back when we were still living in caves, that attitude was necessary for human survival. Nature's a really harsh mistress, especially when you think of all the animals that never ever get to die of old age. Uh, things were a lot different for humans through most of our history on this planet than they are now. Life was dangerous, human settlements were small, isolated from each other, and one big disaster that took out a lot of women pretty much meant the end of the entire shebang for that group of people. So really, the level of importance that a human settlement placed on the well-being of women and children uh, reflected almost always how successful that settlement was. And that can be expanded to encompass entire societies. I keep hearing from the feminist camp that femaleness has always really been undervalued by society and that maleness is preferred. Uh, but I've always contended that it's the exact opposite. The feminine is intrinsically and individually valuable, uh, simply because females are the limiting factor in reproduction of any species. Uh, when it comes to producing babies, every woman counts, whereas biologically, one very happy man could probably do the work of hundreds in that regard. 
So the level of instinctive importance we humans place on the safety and provision of women and their children, it's one of the main reasons why we've been able to be so successful that we've come to really dominate this planet. And while I will concede that this drive to keep women safe from all harm has often resulted in extreme limits being placed on women's mo mobility, uh, their agency, their power of decision to direct their own lives, uh, all through history in many cultures, and in many cultures even today, uh, I think it's telling that those cultures tend to be the most backward. When you consider the restrictions placed on women in places like Afghanistan, and then you consider that if we bombed them into the Stone Age, it would be progress, I think you can conclude that the most successful societies had a really, really good balance between allowing women freedom and the ability to choose and direct their own paths in life and the need to protect them and provide for them. However, uh, feminists will insist that this, uh, these kinds of restrictions being placed on women in those kinds of societies are the ultimate form of, of objectification. Uh, you lock up your possessions to make sure that they will never be lost or stolen or harmed. Uh, honestly, if I were a guy on a battlefield, I might appreciate being objectified in that way. I think if I was going to be an object, I'd rather be a sexual one or somebody's prized possession than an object that can simply be thrown in the trash or smashed into pieces in the service of somebody else's purpose. Feminists also have a very simplistic idea that our willingness to absolve women of their crimes, uh, slap them on the wrist, uh, spare them punishment, um, it comes from a deep disrespect society has for women's personhood. Uh, not seeing them as full human beings, capable of looking after themselves, that we see them as children who don't know any better. And yeah, well, there are parallels uh, there in our desire to protect both women and children from uh, not only their own poor decisions, but the full consequences of their shitty behavior. It's really not as simple as they try to make it out to be. I mean, seriously, even today, even today in 2011, uh, we fully expect that if it comes down to a, a man and a woman in a burning building and you can only save one, the expectation is that you choose the woman every single time. So honestly, whose humanity are we placing above who's here? We're not talking about going to work. We're not talking about getting an education. We're not talking about having the freedom to decide what you want to be in life. And we're not talking about getting to take Taekwondo. We're talking seats and lifeboats here. Uh, the person in the lifeboat is going to survive, no matter how capable or incapable they are of managing their own life. And the person going down with the ship is going to die, no matter how independent, self-sufficient, and awesome he is. That's the equation. One life, more valuable than another. And the woman wins every time. So honestly, is there any argument anywhere that women's humanity has always been held in higher regard by society than men's. To be important to society, a woman merely has to be. A man has to do in order for his life to have any meaning to anyone other than himself. I think it was man-woman myth who said our society reduces men from human beings to human doings. And I really think that's an apt analogy. 
uh, we measure a man's worthiness to wear the title of man, <laughs> and therefore the title of human, through how useful he is, uh, either to society or to women. And one of the most useful things a man can do, even now in the eyes of society, is to put women and children before himself. And while I think there's plenty of argument that this attitude is at least partly innate, the way most survival traits are, even collective ones, uh, if it starts in the chromosomes, we really do everything that we can as a society to reinforce this dynamic. Studies have shown that even though baby boys tend to cry and fuss more than baby girls, uh, parents are quicker to attend to or console a baby girl than they are a baby boy. Um, even just the level of acceptance of infant male circumcision in our culture when female genital mutilation was banned pretty much the first afternoon we all heard it existed. It really says a lot about the differing expectations we have for males and females. I mean, speaking as a mother, uh, the last thing I would have ever wanted uh, was to hear my child cry, especially when they're at an age when they're completely helpless, completely at the mercy of outside forces, and utterly dependent on the adults in their lives for every last thing. And yet, even knowing how painful that cut is, we expect baby boys, only days old, for fuck's sake, to just suck that up. And just think about what even these very first interactions and experiences, these differences in how we nurture our babies, depending on what gender they are, what this teaches them. Uh, what do we teach baby girls when we attend to their crying so quickly? Uh, we teach them to ask for help because their needs are important. Uh, we teach them to let us know when they're afraid or in pain because it's important for us to know when they're sick or in danger or hurt uh, so we can do something about it. We teach them that when they're sad or lonely uh, to summon comfort and comfort will be there. We teach them that they're important. Uh, their needs and well-being, both emotional and physical, are important just because. And what are we teaching baby boys when we leave them to cry? We teach them there's not much point in seeking help, because it will be grudgingly given, if at all. Uh, we teach them that they should become self-contained in their ability to deal with uh, emotions like fear, uh, helplessness, loneliness, sadness, pain, distress. We teach them stoicism. We teach them to suck it up. Uh, we teach them that their fear and their pain are things that are best ignored. We teach them that their emotional and physical well-being are just not as important as other things. I mean, given all of that, is it any wonder it's like pulling teeth to get a man to go to the doctor when he's sick? What we're teaching that baby boy is all the things a man needs to know and feel and believe about himself if he's going to stand in front of a cabin with a rifle while his wife and kids hide inside. We're preparing him for the day he has to fix a bayonet to a rifle and charge a hill under enemy fire. And we're preparing him to make a decision to resign himself to an icy fate while women and children escape in the lifeboats. We are really teaching him to internalize his own disposability. And baby girls, by attending to her crying so quickly, by letting her know she's inherently important to us, we're preparing her for the day she has to think of her own safety first, even if it means the man she loves is left standing alone with a rifle in front of a cabin. We're preparing her to take that seat in the lifeboat. We're training her to not allow guilt or empathy or acknowledgement of a man's humanity or any sense that he might just maybe deserve it more to convince her to give her seat to him. Because for millennia, 
the human species absolutely depended on her feeling 100% entitled to that seat. And that brings me to feminism. You know, the patriarchy smashers, those righteous avengers of equality, uh, dogged dismantlers of every single gender role. What exactly is feminism doing to dismantle this traditional role of the disposable male? Feminism's greatest victories have only reinforced in everyone that society still owes women provision, protection, help, and support just because they're women. In its collective dismissal and abandonment of male victims of domestic violence, it only reinforces in men that it's pointless for them to ask for help because men's needs are of no relevance and their fear and pain don't mean anything to anyone. Feminism teaches us to put women's needs at the forefront of every single issue uh, political or social, whether that issue is domestic violence law, sexual assault law, institutional sexism, social safety net, education funding, homeless shelters, government funding for shovel-ready jobs that didn't stay shovel-ready once feminists got wind of them. Everywhere you look, everywhere you look, there are feminists pushing their way to the front of the line, demanding women's fair share of all of the goodies, the good stuff, the, the loot, the booty, the cookies. Even if women don't need it, even if women don't deserve it, and even if somebody else needs it and deserves it more. And they get it, because we give it to them. Feminism has done nothing but exploit this dynamic of the expectation on men to put everybody else before themselves, especially women. Women's safety and support, women's well-being, and women's emotional needs always come first. This is the most stunning piece of society-wide manipulative psychology I think I have ever come across. Feminism has been on the down-low with old-school chivalry right from the start, and they might seem like strange bedfellows for sure, but they're not, because both concepts are built on a firm foundation of female self-interest. We made our way as humans through a really harsh history, and we became the dominant force on this planet. And one of the reasons we were so successful is because we have consistently put women's basic needs first, their need for safety, support, and provision. It was in humanity's best interest for women to be essentially self-interested and for men to be essentially self-sacrificing. But we don't need that dynamic anymore. I mean... Our species is in no danger of, ex of extinction. I mean, we're seven billion people clogging up the works here. What's the worst that could happen if we all just collectively decided that men were no more disposable than women and women were no more valuable than men? In fact, the greatest danger I see to us right now is that in our desperation to bend over and give women everything they want and everything that they say they need, we've unbalanced society to the point where we're just in danger of seriously toppling over. And really, the only difference I see between the traditional role and the new one for men with respect to disposability is that maleness, manhood, it used to be celebrated, it used to be admired, and it used to be rewarded because it was really fucking necessary and because the personal cost of it to individual men was so incredibly high. But now? Now we still expect men to put women first and we still expect society to put women first and we still expect men to not complain about coming in dead last every damn time. But men don't even get our admiration anymore. 
all they get in return is to hear about what assholes they are. Is it any wonder they're starting to get pissed off? Anyhow, that's not all I have to say about this subject. Uh, but it is all I have to say about it today, since my kid is about to walk in the door um, home from school. So I am going to sign off, and hopefully I will see you all again. Um, for now, I'm Girl Writes What. Ciao. Above the great west door of the renowned Westminster Abbey in London, England, stand the statues of ten Christian martyrs of the 20th century. Included among them is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a brilliant German theologian born in 1906. Bonhoeffer became a vocal critic of the Nazi dictatorship and its treatment of Jews and others. He was imprisoned for his active opposition and finally executed in a concentration camp. Bonhoeffer was a prolific writer, and some of his best-known pieces are letters that sympathetic guards helped him smuggle out of prison, later published as letters and papers from prison. One of those letters was to his niece before her wedding. It included these significant insights. Quote, Marriage is more than your love for each other. In your love, you see only your two selves in the world. But in marriage, you're a link in the chain of the generations, which God causes to come and to pass away to His glory and calls into His kingdom. In your love, you see only the heaven of your own happiness. But in marriage, you are placed at a post of responsibility towards the world and mankind. Your love is your own private possession. But marriage is more than something personal. It is a status, an office. Just as it is the crown and not merely the will to rule that makes the king, so it is marriage and not merely your love for each other that joins you together in the sight of God and man. So love comes from you, but marriage from above, from God." Unquote. In what way does marriage between a man and a woman transcend their love for one another and their own happiness to become a post of responsibility towards the world and mankind? In what sense does it come from above, from God? To understand, we have to go back to the beginning. Prophets have revealed that we first existed as intelligences and that we were given form or spirit bodies by God, thus becoming His spirit children, sons and daughters of heavenly parents. There came a time in this premortal existence of spirits when, in furtherance of His desire that we could have a privilege to advance like Himself, our Heavenly Father prepared an enabling plan. In the scriptures, it's given various names, including the plan of salvation, the great plan of happiness, and the plan of redemption. The two principal purposes of the plan were explained to Abraham in these words. And there stood one among them that was like unto God, and he said unto those who were with him, We will go down, for there is space there, and we will take of these materials, and we will make an earth whereon these spirits may dwell. And we will prove them herewith to see if they will do all things whatsoever the Lord their God shall command them. And they who keep their first estate shall be added upon, 
and they who keep their second estate shall have glory added upon their heads forever and ever. Thanks to our Heavenly Father, we had already become spirit beings. Now He was offering us a path to complete or perfect that being. The addition of the physical element is essential to the fullness of being and glory that God Himself enjoys. If, while with God in the premortal spirit world, we would agree to participate in His plan, or in other words, keep our first estate, we would be added upon with a physical body as we came to dwell on the earth that He created for us. If then, in the course of our mortal experience, we chose to do all things whatsoever the Lord our God should command us, we would have kept our second estate. This means that by our choices we would demonstrate to God and to ourselves our commitment and capacity to live His celestial law while outside His presence and in a physical body with all its powers, appetites, and passions. Could we bridle the flesh so that it became the instrument rather than the master of the spirit? Could we be trusted in time and eternity with godly powers, including the power to create life? Would we individually overcome evil? Those who did would have glory added upon their heads forever and ever a very significant aspect of that glory being a resurrected, immortal, and glorified physical body. No wonder we shouted for joy at these magnificent possibilities and promises. At least four things are needed for the success of this divine plan. First was the creation of the earth as our dwelling place. Whatever the details of the creation process, we know that it was not accidental but that it was directed by God the Father and implemented by Jesus Christ. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Second is the condition of mortality. Adam and Eve acted for all who had chosen to participate in the Father's great plan of happiness. Their fall created the conditions needed for our physical birth and for mortal experience and learning outside the presence of God. With the fall came an awareness of good and evil and the God-given power to choose. Finally, the fall brought about physical death, needed to make our time in mortality temporary so that we would not live forever in our sins. Third is redemption from the fall. We see the role of death in our Heavenly Father's plan, but that plan would become void without some way to overcome death in the end, both physical and spiritual. Thus, a Redeemer, the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ, suffered and died to atone for Adam and Eve's transgression, thereby providing resurrection and immortality for all. And since none of us will have been perfectly and consistently obedient to the gospel law, His Atonement also redeems us from our own sins on condition of repentance. With the Savior's atoning grace providing forgiveness of sins and sanctification of the soul, we can spiritually be born again and reconciled to God. Our spiritual death, our separation from God, will end. Fourth and finally is the setting for our physical birth and subsequent rebirth 
into the kingdom of God. For His work to succeed, to exalt us with Himself, God ordained that men and women should marry and give birth to children, thereby creating, in partnership with God, the physical bodies that are key to the test of mortality and essential to eternal glory with Him. He also ordained that parents should establish families and rear their children in light and truth, leading them to a hope in Christ. The Father commands us, Teach these things freely unto your children, saying, That inasmuch as ye were born into the world by water and blood and the Spirit which I have made, and so became of dust a living soul, even so ye must be born again into the kingdom of heaven, of water and of the Holy Spirit, and be cleansed by blood, even the blood of mine only begotten, that ye might be sanctified from all sin, and enjoy the words of eternal life in this world and eternal life in the world to come, even immortal glory. Knowing why we left the presence of our Heavenly Father and what it takes to return and be exalted with Him, it becomes very clear that nothing relative to our time on earth can be more important than physical birth and spiritual rebirth the two prerequisites of eternal life. This is, to use the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the office of marriage, the post of responsibility towards mankind that this divine institution from above, from God, occupies. It is the link in the chain of generations both here and hereafter, the order of heaven. A family built on the marriage of a man and woman supplies the best setting for God's plan to thrive the setting for the birth of children who come in purity and innocence from God, and the environment for the learning and preparation they'll need for a successful mortal life and eternal life in the world to come. A critical mass of families built on such marriages is vital for societies to survive and flourish. And that is why communities and nations generally have encouraged and protected marriage and the family as privileged institutions. It has never been just about the love and happiness of adults. The social science case for marriage and for families headed by a married man and woman is compelling. And so we warn that the disintegration of the family will bring upon individuals, communities, and nations the calamities foretold by ancient and modern prophets. But our claims for the role of marriage and family rest not on social science but on the truth that they are God's creation. It is He who in the beginning created Adam and Eve in His image, male and female, and joined them as husband and wife to become one flesh and to multiply and replenish the earth. Each individual carries the divine image, but it is in the matrimonial union of male and female as one that we attain perhaps the most complete meaning of our having been made in the image of God, male and female. Nor we nor any other mortal can alter this divine order of matrimony. It is not a human invention. Such marriage is indeed from above, from God, and is as much a part of the plan of happiness as the fall and the atonement. In the pre-mortal world, Lucifer rebelled against God and His plan 
and his opposition only grows in intensity. He fights to discourage marriage and the formation of families. And where marriages and families are formed, he does what he can to disrupt them. He attacks everything that is sacred about human sexuality, tearing it from the context of marriage with a seemingly infinite array of immoral thoughts and acts. He seeks to convince men and women, men and women, that marriage and family priorities can be ignored or abandoned or at least made subservient to careers, other achievements, and the quest for self-fulfillment and individual autonomy. Certainly, the adversary is pleased when parents neglect to teach and train their children to have faith in Christ and be spiritually born again. Brothers and sisters, many things are good, many are important, but only a few are essential. To declare the fundamental truths relative to marriage and family is not to overlook or diminish the sacrifices and successes of those for whom the ideal is not a present reality. Some of you are denied the blessings of marriage for reasons including a lack of viable prospects, same-sex attraction, physical or mental impairments, or simply a fear of failure that, for the moment at least, overshadows faith. Or you may have married, but that marriage ended, and you're left to manage alone what two together can barely sustain. Some of you who are married cannot bear children despite overwhelming desires and pleading prayers. Even so, everyone has gifts, everyone has talents, everyone can contribute to the unfolding of the divine plan in each generation. Much that is good, much that is essential, even sometimes all that's necessary for now, can be achieved in less than ideal circumstances. So many of you are doing your very best. And when you who bear the heaviest burdens of mortality stand up in defense of God's plan to exalt His children, we're all ready to march. With confidence, we testify that the Atonement of Jesus Christ has anticipated and in the end will compensate all deprivation and loss for those who turn to Him. No one is predestined to receive less than all that the Father has for His children. One young mother recently confided to me her anxiety about being inadequate in this highest of callings. I felt that the issues that concerned her were small and she needn't worry. She was doing fine. But I knew she only wanted to please God and to honor His trust. I offered words of reassurance, and in my heart I pleaded that God, her Heavenly Father, would buoy her up with His love and the witness of His approval as she is about His work. And that is my prayer for all of us today. May each of us find approval in His sight. May marriages flourish and families prosper. And whether our lot is a fullness of these blessings in mortality or not, may the Lord's grace bring happiness now and faith in sure promises to come. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.